What's going on everybody? Today we're going to dive into the topic of what does the Bible say about tradition? Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everyone. It is your host, Jordan Beachnaw, and today's episode is an extension of last episode where we talked about the origins of the Bible and how it was crucial that we needed tradition in order to compile the Bible in the late 300s. And today we're going to actually dive into the Bible and the New Testament to see what the Gospels, the New Testament letters, and what the church actually teaches about tradition. First, I would like to start out with just a recap of our last episode where we talked about just the history and logic of where the Bible came from and what the early church, uh, the church fathers said about it. So um, we know from history and just lo- using logic that there was no Bible in the first five or so decades of the church. There were no, None of the gospels, none of the letters were even written and there was no authoritative canon. So the Bible as we have it today, there that was not a thing until about uh, the late 300s. So the first four centuries, there was no canon of scripture. And then Jesus, he never wrote a single letter, nor did he tell any of his followers to write anything. Rather, he he established an authoritative church that would last through the centuries. Nor was the Bible uh, a mystery book that was randomly found or dropped out of the sky that we had to figure out what it all meant. It came from the church that Jesus founded, the apostles of the church and who knew, and, and they actually knew Jesus. So we didn't have to figure out solely from scripture what it, what it all meant. For example, we didn't have to figure out solely from scripture if Jesus meant it literally when he said to eat his body and drink his blood. We believe it because his apostles and his disciples that actually knew him and all of the church from the very beginning believed it before the Bible even came to be. So therefore we can go back to what the people that knew Jesus, what they believed, and we can see that to line up our interpretation of scripture. And that is just one example of why tradition is so essential in compiling the Bible to determine true Christianity and having the deposit of faith and truth that was given by Jesus to his apostles. And tradition is what was used to compile the Bible to determine true Christianity, that the that tradition that, uh, that was handed down from Jesus to his apostles lined up with all the letters that they had to choose from in order to make it into the canon of the Bible that was led by the Holy Spirit in the church. And tradition is just so important because it extends and it helps remain faithful to the true Christian faith instituted by Jesus 2,000 years ago instead of trying to try to recreate Christianity, which is what we see is happening when we go to scripture alone. We separate history from scripture. And tradition and scripture are inseparable. As I mentioned before, when I was just putting even my notes together, it was so hard to only talk about tradition or only talk about scripture because both of them are inseparable. They are both uh, revelations um, uh, handed down from God himself. So tradition and scripture are are inseparable and cannot contradict each other because they come from the same source, which is God himself. And then we walked through uh, in the last episode, the church fathers. So the church fathers had direct connections to Jesus and apostles. So for example, St. Ignatius of Antioch, he had writings uh, that dated right around the year 100. And he was friends with St. Polycarp, who knew St. John, who obviously was one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus. And St. John, he has a gospel and and he has three letters, and then he's the author of Revelation. And so each of them talk about the Catholic Church. So St. Ignatius of Antioch, he was the first one to use the word Catholic in describing the church. So Catholic means universal. So he describes it as that. Both St. Polycarp and St. Ignatius of Antioch, who both knew St. John, who knew Jesus, they both talk about the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. They talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. They talk about the nature of baptism and the necessity of it. And they also talk about the authority of the church. They talk about the Pope and the bishops, and especially the primacy of the Pope. And when we look at the church fathers, what they're talking about in the first uh, four centuries, so the anti-Nicene church fathers and the Nicene church fathers, so those traditions that they talk about, big T traditions, that the apostles referred to, such as like the sacraments or Mary, those were hardly ever debated in the first four centuries of the church. But what was debated were the New Testament books and which ones belonged in the canon and which, which letters were truly inspired by God. And even the ones that they say were not inspired by God, like they were never in, t- in the canon of the New Testament that we have today, th- they're not false. They still hold truth. 
but they were not by the Holy Spirit leading the church. They uh, ultimately decided that they were not inspired by God. And then uh, just another example of letters that were in the first century, we talked about the Didache. So that's the teaching of the 12, They're the teaching of the 12 apostles, the Didache. And I even have the letter. But um, that's dated even as early as the 30s or 40s. So before any New Testament letters were. And in that Didache, they talk about the Eucharist. They talk about fasting, mass, confession, etc. And they also taught how to baptize. So this is just another thing that is taught. And we can see that was a uh, belief the very earliest uh, Christians, the uh, original 12 apostles taught this. They taught how to baptize, and this is not taught in the Bible. Uh, they said baptize like in submersion in a, in a body of water. If they don't have that available, then go to living water, so running water, or use cold water, or pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they always baptize babies. The only debate was whether they should wait for the eighth day in accord with the old covenant law of circ. Uh, the old covenant law of circumcision on the eighth day or if they should just be baptized right away ultimately the church father said that no man born should be denied the grace and mercy of god and that's actually a quote from saint saint uh cyprian of carthage in the 200s so as we can see just from that one uh isolated example of baptism how essential it is to also have tradition because the original 12 apostles did not write everything down that we have in the Bible on what was on how to properly like minister the sacraments or anything like that. And then we talked about uh, just what happens when we separate the Bible apart from history. So when we read the Bible apart from history or from the church, it causes division as we put our interpretations as the sole source or we become our own authority. Um, what another like a convert Protestant pastor came to the Catholic faith he described it as that we make ourselves our own pope it's our interpretation that is the correct one and it's led to 50 40 to 50 thousand plus denominations of Christianity that all claim to follow the Bible so um, the Bible is inerrant but we are not infallible as is the church Jesus founded and uh, Henry Cardinal Newman he said this to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant and St. Augustine in the in the 4th century, in the 300s, he even said when he clarified things, he said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And that is what is happening with when we try to separate uh, the Bible from the church, because then the Bible is outside of where it came from, and we, our own interpretation is becoming the sole source of authority. And that has just caused all this division that Jesus truly did not want, right? So, and uh, we talked about how scripture alone is non-scriptural. We're going to actually go into that today. And it's really self-refuting. And it's ironic that if scripture alone is true Christianity, then why are people bothering to argue their points and still have footnotes in their Bible to explain things? And this led to the 40 to 50,000 denominations. And um, so, and really recreating Christianity based on our own beliefs, our, our own interpretations, which are following man-made traditions and not sacred tradition that only the Catholic Church has. And we'll, we're going to see that today. So we also went through the history of who founded what churches um, in the last episode. So Jesus founded one church, and that is the Catholic Church that dates all the way back to Jesus, the Peter, and the Apostles. And so, uh, and not all Protestants even disagree with sacred tradition on every matter. In cases where they agree, however, it is not because they recognize the authority of sacred tradition, but because their personal interpretations of sacred scripture, their own personal traditions, you might say, just happen to agree with it or have been shaped by it without their realizing. So just a few things that, like a few traditions that are that we just naturally accept as Americans or human beings are the dates of Christmas and Easter. Those are debated in the church, and Christmas literally is referring to the Mass of Christ. Christmas is a Catholic worship. Um, the word holiday, that comes from a Catholic Christian roots of Holy Day. Um, Thanksgiving, what we just celebrated, that is a tradition that everybody follows. So not every tradition is evil. And uh, and some people say tradition is just, we need to do away with it. But literally having a tradition is in our very being. We all have traditions even without knowing it. Even if somebody didn't want traditions, then not having a tradition would be their tradition. <laughs> so tradition and our human nature is just inseparable. So sola scriptura, 
and, and we saw this last time too, that Sola Scripture led to heresies such as the Arians who denied that Jesus is God, and they actually referenced Scripture. Heretics knew Scripture just as well as the faithful did. And also in the last episode, I shared a, a modern day example of the issues of Sola Scriptura from a Protestant pastor convert. Um, each church, he basically said that each church ultimately needs an authoritative body to make final decisions and for unity. But that is in itself against Sola Scriptura. And for and in our example, the Calvinist pastor needed the Bible and at least three church documents at the time of the Reformation in order to be the pastor that he was being ordained for. And then we talked about the um, deuterocanonical books. So, in every, and we saw that in every single instance of the church identifying the canon of scripture, it was identical to what Catholic Bibles contain today. At the Synod of Rome in 382, the Council of Hippo in 393, the Council of Carthage in 397, a letter from Pope Innocent I to Exusperus, the Bishop of Toulouse in 405, and the Second Council of Carthage in 419. Those were all, they were never even debated, those uh, deuterocanonical books or the apocryphal books in the Protestant Bibles. They were never even debated if they were inspired. And we saw that the deuterocanonical deuterocanonical books were used and affirmed their authority by Jesus and the apostles themselves. And we see in the New Testament, the New Testament authors used the Septuagint, which is that contained the deuterocanonical books. The Septuagint, again, was that Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible. And uh, there's the 300 references to the Old Testament and the New Testament, 250 of them are from the Septuagint. And so, uh, and even the those apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books were so used and so familiar with every single Christian for those sixteen hundred years up until the Reformation, that uh, even the Protestants who took them out of the Bible, they couldn't completely take them out. They put them in appendix because people were like outraged that they were being removed. And so, and then we also talked about how to properly read the script, how how to properly read Scripture. So, reading from through the lens of the church who has the church fathers, who knew the apostles and the authors, and they used the, the um, technique of typology, so using the Old Testament and the New Testament in, uh, in connection with each other, which is exactly what the church fathers and the authors themselves, that's how they wrote the letters, so we're using the Old Testament. So, And if you get familiar with that typology technique, the Bible is going to come alive. And I would recommend consulting a commentary. So my favorite commentary is the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, and they usually have it by individual gospels, and there's some letters that they combine into a single book. But go ahead and like Google it on Amazon. Those are the best ones. And, uh, and allow the Bible to determine your experience, not limiting the Bible to your personal experiences or your own uh, interpretation or your own presuppositions that you want the Bible to say. So, and we also talked about how scripture can take on multiple meanings. It can be a both and and not just an either or. So that is what we talked about last time. Sorry that I just took about 12 minutes to do that, but I just thought it was, I think it's just so important to even think about the history and the logic of how scripture came to be and what was used in order to compile the Bible that really shows us how scripture and tradition are inseparable. So now let's talk about scripture itself and how scripture actually points to tradition and the church. So um, first, just to give us some basis, we're ultimately going to find out that scripture alone is not scriptural. There's nowhere in scripture where it says the Bible alone is sufficient or our sole rule of faith. So um, and uh, so let's start out even in the Old Testament. So the Jewish people were not scripture alone. In the Old Testament, there, there's they give instructions for what to do when you cannot interpret God's word in a given situation. And this is in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 8 through 12, and we'll reference it now. And it says, If there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy with your ga- within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God shall choose, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge that shall be in those days and and inquire. And they shall show you the sentence of judgment, and you shall do according to the sentences which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show you. And you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you, and according to the judgment which they shall tell you. And you shall do, you shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you, 
to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will be presumptuously and will not listen to the priest that stands to minister there before the Lord your God or to the judge, that man shall die, and he shall put away the evil from Israel. So there we see that uh, they uh, seeking a judgment from the Levitical priest and or the civil judge. Uh, and those two, when they're together, basically represents canon law and civil law, respectively. And this means that Deuteronomy, the very last and greatest statement of the Mosaic Covenant, so that uh, the uh, Pentateuch or the Torah, the, there's five books. The last one is Deuteronomy. So the, that's the last and greatest statement of the Mosaic Covenant. And that did not consider itself a self-interpreting um, document. And it, presume, it, it presumed a living and identifiable community with living, identifiable priest judges who could authoritatively adjudicate for the whole people. So each individual Israelite was not tasked with the responsibility of interpreting the divine law of his own. And we're going to see when we go through the scripture that just as the authority was recognized in the Israelite kingdom in the Old Testament, whether it was with judges, kings, high priests, tribes, prophets, Jesus fulfills all of them in himself. And then he shares his authority on earth and he backs up his church with the Pope and the bishops or Peter and the apostles that participate in Jesus's authority. So now let's dive into what the Gospels say. So just to start off, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They talk, that's basically the biography of Jesus's life. And within them, we see that Jesus didn't write anything. He taught orally and he didn't tell his apostles to write anything either. So even starting out in the very first, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in verses 1 through 4 in the very first chapter of Luke, it reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. So literally, right off the bat, you have Luke saying that he is not an eyewitness, but he is uh, informing himself from the oral teaching that was handed down from the original apostles, and he was a, a disciple of St. Paul, so he knew St. Paul. And, and also other texts that were, there was other writings about Jesus that he used in order to inform himself about the truth in order to write the Gospel of Luke. So there's automatically things in the Gospel of Luke that not everything about Jesus is contained. Or taught. And then uh, if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, and at the very end of chapter 20 and the end of chapter 21, the end of the Gospel, and it says this Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then the end of chapter 21, it says, There are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we see in both instances here that the Gospel of John itself is pointing to something that happened outside of the Gospel, of the letter, and it's pointing to what Jesus did. And when every single time what Jesus was doing, he was also preaching. He had many things that he said or did with his disciples and with other people. So his uh, miracles always expressed what he was teaching. So if he was uh, performing miracles, which in this case it does say, like um, there are many other signs in the presence of the disciples, or there are uh, many other things that Jesus did. Well, in both of those instances, instances, it's gonna imply that there was also preaching because Jesus always preached, and then there was miracles that followed because the miracles expressed what the what he was saying in words. So he's pointing to Jesus himself, and uh, it's Jesus what he he taught down to his apostles, his disciples are even more authoritative than what we read in that uh, certain part of the letter because Jesus is the incarnate word of God himself. And then uh, when you hear of when the Lord opened the scriptures, so like in the road to Emmaus, he opened the scriptures to the two disciples. He was using the Septuagint Old Testament. So if you remember, that is the uh, Greek translation and which also contained the Deuterocanonical book. So every, the, basically the uh, Catholic Old Testament Bible. And Jesus was using this to show how the law and the prophets all pointed to Jesus and him crucified. 
And so he's using the Septuagint Old Testament. So he's affirming the authority of Scripture because Scripture does have authority. But he's not even using any New Testament letters or books because there was none of the none of them are written. Nor did Jesus write any of them, and he didn't write anything down. Nor did he tell anybody to write them down. So here he's pointing to um, how Jesus and himself fulfills the law and the prophets using the Old Testament scripture. And and we see, as we did uh, in our last episode, that the church, in accordance with sacred tradition, had the authority to determine what belonged in the Bible. And in our next episode, we'll dive into the papacy, so the authority of Peter and the apostles and the pope and the bishops all the way down through the centuries that Jesus founded a church. But you see in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus gives the Peter, gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that is the only person he gives the keys of the kingdom to is only Peter. But he also gives him the power to bind and loose. And then he also tells the apostles in Matthew 18, 18 and two chapters later that they have the power to bind and loose. So Peter is the only one that with the keys and he's the only one that gets his name changed and all the other apostles share in the authority and union with Peter in Matthew 18, 18, the power to bind and loose things of faith and morals and Jesus. And he is establishing that whatever you bind in heaven shall be bound on or bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what loose on earth what shall be loose in heaven. So he is granting the authority of heaven and the decision making and the authority that is given to Peter and the apostles backed up um, by Jesus himself. And so he told this church, the Peter and the apostles, to he told them to preach. He never told them to write anything. And then he says, when they hear you, they hear me. So he's always talking about preaching and talking and speaking orally, authoritatively, based on the Peter and the apostles uh, established by Jesus. And uh, John fourteen eighteen, uh, Jesus was not going to leave us orphans. He gave us a church. And he told that church, and he told the Peter and the apostles, teach them all I have commanded you. And all of these things that he's commanded us, he spoke orally all the time. And as we saw in Luke and John, it even says right in scripture that there was more things that Jesus said and did outside of what was written down in the gospels. So there's these, these oral traditions that had to be passed down from Jesus to the apostles. And then Jesus commanded the apostles to do all that he handed on to them. And you read that again in Matthew 8, uh, 28, um, 19 through 20. He promised them the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish this in, in John 14 and again in John 16. And he says this because there's gonna, he even implies that after Jesus' ascension, there's gonna be matters of faith and morals that come up that Jesus did not talk about and cover while he was here uh, on earth. And that those 30 years or in his three years of ministry, there's going to be more that the church is going to be front of, is going to be faced with. But guess what? He granted the church, the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And so, uh, and then there's no list of these doctrines in the Bible, nor does the church now try to make an exhaustive list of implicit, uh, implicit doctrines because uh, it allows new implications within the apostolic deposit of faith to be realized over the course of time as the Holy Spirit leads the church into all the truth, which scripture says. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will lead the church into all the truth. And that includes all the way till this day and all generations, that the Holy Spirit will lead the church into all truth. So anytime that there is a an attack on the faith, or we saw like in the last episode, there was an attack on Jesus's divinity in the fourth century with the Arian heresy. Well, guess what? Jesus promised that the church would be led into all truth by the Pope and the bishops in union with each other, the magisterium authority of the church. So uh, like Jesus was always divine, but the church didn't have to formally define that until it got attacked in the fourth century. It wasn't something that Jesus said during his three years of earthly ministry to his apostles like, hey, just so you know, there's going to come a time that this happens. No, he says, there's going to, I'm going to have the Holy Spirit given to you in the church to lead my people into all truth. And so, and then we, we see in scripture too, where there seems like there's times where Jesus condemns uh, um, tradition, but we'll see as we talk about them in a few instances that Jesus is talking about human traditions that undermine uh, uh, the law of God. So in Matthew fifteen sixteen, he is condemning, it sounds like he's condemning uh, tradition. 
But here he's actually criticizing the tradition of a selfishly applying korban tradition. Korban was a sacrificial offering. Um, so they were using this, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were using this in a way that allowed money to be given as a gift to the temple in lieu of supporting one's aged parents. So the, and if you know, the fourth commandment is honoring your parents. Well, this human tradition of offering uh, money uh, in the temple um, as a sacrificial offering, people were using it in a way to say, hey, I gave it to God, mom and dad, I can't help you out. So it literally was undermining the Ten Commandments by this human tradition of uh, um, that they were using in order to undermine people's uh, honoring their parents. So Jesus did not reject the notion of authoritative religious tradition. And we'll see in Matthew 23, the beginning of Matthew 23, Jesus actually tells his disciples to obey the Pharisees because they sit on the chair of Moses. So this chair of Moses was not an actual chair. But it was a term that referred to a Jewish tradition about the Pharisees teaching an authority. And you will not find this in scripture. It's the chair of Moses is not in scripture. This was a tradition that came out of recognizing the Pharisees teaching authority uh, as they sit on the chair of Moses, which is instituted by God himself. But this tradition of calling it the chair of Moses is outside of scripture. But Jesus here actually affirms it. So here Jesus is affirming a tradition not found in scripture. Um, and so and then again in Mark 7 through 8, he says, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men, which here he was specific to the precepts of man. So man made rules that put undue burdens on the Jews. And you even hear this echoed in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2, 8, it says, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. Here, Paul is echoing Jesus' condemnations related to human traditions. And the philosophy that Paul mentions here is a reference to man-made precepts of the Jewish law. So Jesus is saying human traditions that undermine the law or uh, the love of God and they're blocking people or putting undue burden on them, that is what is uh, he is condemning, our human traditions that put undue burden of the Jews. He's not putting a blanket statement across all traditions. And uh, the Catholic Church actually goes so far because they, to in order to distinguish this, because they have sacred tradition. So sacred tradition, capital T tradition, is not such a tradition, a lowercase tradition, as Jesus is referring to and St. Paul is referring to here and these human-made traditions. Sacred tradition, it, it is the teaching of Jesus and the apostles passed on over time and guided by the Holy Spirit. It is not deceitful, but true. It is not human in origin, but divine, because Jesus instituted it or Jesus revealed it is divinely revealed. Just like the teaching of Mary, teaching of the Eucharist, teaching of the sacrifice of the mass, the uh, authority of the church, these are sacred traditions because it comes from Jesus himself. Because of Jesus, it is a sacred tradition. And that is the distinguishment between a sacred tradition, big T tradition, and a small T tradition, because a small T tradition is not divinely revealed. Although there are many small T traditions, just as like Thanksgiving or uh, anything that, uh, that is celebrated within a, a church outside the Catholic church, they might not be um, undermining uh, uh, put, or putting undue burdens on people, but they're small T traditions. They're not divinely revealed. And any tradition that contradicts scripture must be false because God's revelation cannot contradict, contradict itself. But this doesn't make sacred tradition inferior to, to scripture. For it is likewise true that any proposed scripture or interpretation of scripture that contradicts sacred tradition is also false and must be rejected. Scripture must be tested against tradition to see if it is apostolic. So let's dive into the epistles, the New Testament uh, letters outside of the Gospels now. So we're going to see as we work through the, the letters of the New Testament that almost every single letter of Paul's or Peter's or John's or Jude's, one of the very last messages in the letters are that they should obey or be subject to the authority that they are give, that the, the community or the church has, which is the, the bishops that are uh, overseeing them. Or they'll be referring to a, uh, a warning against heresies or false teachers or a warning against disobedience to the person writing the letter, which is 
uh, the apostles themselves. So it wasn't in the first century. It wasn't the this letter is it in itself is authoritative, but it's actually the person that was writing it. That was how the early church um, uh, had this authority because who was actually writing it. So let's first go into where the New Testament talks about uh, tradition in a, in a, a very explicit manner. So 1 Corinthians 11.2, it says, Maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, it says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So that is literally what tradition is, a handing on. So St. Paul is saying, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. There is perfect tradition. And what is the instituting there? the Eucharist that Jesus gave us at the Last Supper, the sacrifice of the Mass he is offering. He's telling the Corinthian community how to properly consume the body and blood of Jesus. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you are taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And even uh, there's commentary on this, even in the 4th century. So St. John Chrysostom in 347-407, to 407, uh, he, he, wrote, he had a commentary on very, this very verse. And he says, From this it is clear that the apostles did not hand down everything by letter, but there is much also that was not written, like that which was written the unwritten too is worthy of belief. So let us regard the tradition of the church also as worth of belief. Is it a tradition? Seek no further. So St. John Chrysostom is literally saying, affirming that right here in scripture, it's pointing to that there's teachings outside of the letters or the gospels themselves that are handed on to the church and also to also uh, confirm what the letters say is he's saying, is it a tradition in the church? Then yes, it is true. Seek no further. And then again in 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, uh, 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So there's already an, uh, issues even going on in the, in the first, Christ, first century of Christianity of pe- people teaching traditions that are not in accord with the apostles. So those are the matters of where scripture we see a very explicit mention of tradition. And then let's also work into the New Testament letters where they talk about tradition implicitly. So let's start out in the Acts of the Apostles. So here, Luke, he's a Gentile Christian. He is not an eyewitness account. Uh, This is not an eyewitness account of Jesus. He actually, like I said, in the Gospel of Luke, where he pulled his resources from other resources, including oral traditions that he was taught. So Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he specifically talks about the early church. Well, if you read the first 11 chapters, you're going to see that Peter dominates. And then even and again in Acts 15, where Peter, uh, they have their first, the first council of Jerusalem, and it's Peter and the apostles that are um, in union with the authority of the church and the decision-making of including Gentiles and in Christianity, not having to observe the Jewish law in order to become Christian, and all these different things. Go ahead and just like keep your eye on Peter's name in the first 11 chapters. But we'll talk more about that uh, in the next episode when we talk about the papacy. And then in uh, Acts 2.42, there's nowhere, not a mention to the Bible or letters or anything like that, but it says that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, which they're not anywhere in the Bible, um, other than like in the letters where they're explicitly told or implicitly told um, to the communities on a specific topic that they're either struggling with or uh, certain things going on in the community. And as you read the book of Acts, you're going to see that there was the preaching of the word of God and it increased as well as grew and multiplied. The word of God is proclaimed, spoken, and people came to hear it. So people were not reading anything at that time of the early church. And then in Acts 8, uh, there's the story of Philip going up to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch and he's asking them, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch wisely says that how can I unless someone teaches me and I think that would be a wise thing for all of us to say because the Bible is not an easy thing to read or an easy book to interpret and we need the church in order to be properly instructed in the interpretation of the Bible So we already see here that the Bible itself, the stories in the Bible itself is showing how difficult the Bible can be to read it and to understand it. And we need someone to teach us to it. Well, Jesus gave us a church, authority of the church. 
to in order to properly interpret scripture. And then in Acts 18, Paul is depicted as teaching the word of God. In Acts 19, disciples never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They, these people were teaching about the Father and the Son, Father and Jesus, but uh, they never heard of the Holy Spirit. So here we're even seeing that they then that the, when they were properly taught about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these the uh, apostles themselves are accurately teaching these disciples that are on fire for Jesus about the Holy Spirit. They weren't using Scripture to explain it. They were uh, on their own authority in the church why the God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, uh, it says, Remembering the, the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. End quote. So it's literally quoting Jesus, a quote that Jesus said, and it's not even found in scripture. It's not found in the gospels. There's a wider tradition that they're referencing. So this oral tradition of Jesus, what he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive is outside of the gospel letters. And the right, the timing of when the when Acts was written, I'm pretty sure it was before the gospels. And then you move into Romans, the book of Romans. In Romans 1.11, it says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then towards the end of Romans in chapter 15, verse 24, it says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be sped on my journey there by you once I enjoyed your company for a little. So in both instances, St. Paul is saying that he wants to see them face to face in order to teach them more than what he is writing in the letter. And then in uh, Romans 10, 17, it says faith comes from, he from hearing. So we need to hear the word of God, not just read it. And then if you move into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 17, it says, Admonish you as my beloved children. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. There I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So just a few things there, and maybe I'll talk about this in a different episode, but already uh, in multiple point, uh, points in scripture, uh, outside of just this reference, but you see here that the early Christians called their um, called their uh, bishops or the priests over them at like father because they were their spiritual fathers in the faith and the spiritual fathers had spiritual children. Anyways, so, but also it says here that I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So here he references that he is get, that Timothy has authority to teach and that uh, and as St. Paul teaches them everywhere in every church. So are, there are things outside of what St. Paul writes that has authority and St. Paul share and that authority is given to other generations as we see here that is given to Timothy in order to teach other people in the faith. And then in uh, chapter 11, verse 34, it says, about the other things I will give directions when I come. About the other things I will give directions when I come. So he's implying here that everything that he's writing to the Corinthian community right here is not the full doctrine, not the full belief. It's not this uh, fully encompassing set of rules or anything like that. It's the authority granted to him uh, through the church that has that gives him authority to teach to the Corinthian community. Then in uh, chapter 16, 7, it says, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So here again, he is referencing something that he is going to be teaching once he gets there. Uh, chapter 16, verse 16, I urge you to subject to such men and to every fellow worker and laborer. So actually he uses that same uh, fellow worker and laborer again in Romans when he lists Timothy as a laborer because Timothy is ordained a bishop of the early church. And when you move into 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, uh, verse 10, it says, I write this while I am away from you in order that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, which the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. So here he is saying that he has authority because he is uh, given him authority in the church. Not just the letters that he is writing has the authority. And then uh, Ephesians, and when you go into Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. That is not found in Scripture anywhere. There's a wider tradition. And then in chapter 6, verse 21, it says, uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister, 
in the Lord will tell you everything. So St. Paul is writing to the Ephesian community that there's another uh, faithful minister and the ministerial priesthood and the bishops that will will tell you everything. So uh, he's already pointing to somebody else that has authority because he has authority in the church and not just everything is written in the letter that he is writing to the Ephesians here. Then in Philippians, St. Paul, uh, he mentions St. Clement in uh, Philippians 4.3. There's a wider tradition here. Again, St. Clement actually went on to be our fourth pope uh, and within the very same first century. that, And you can even see the authority given to every single pope and the respect of that uh, papacy and that office given to him. And then again, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, 7 through 9, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my affairs. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, uh, Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who is one of yourselves, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So again, there's not everything written in the letters. There's things outside the letters. Chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So he's pointing to somebody else who also has authority to teach. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, We might have made demands as apostles of Christ. And then again in uh, verse 17 in that same chapter 2. But since we were bereft of you, brethren, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Again, he is saying that he wants to get to see them face to face and not everything that he writes in letter is, is sufficient. Chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love. So here we see Timothy, who, and we mentioned before, Timothy has authority over the Thessalonians and his teachings are not captured in the Bible. And then it, uh, it also says, we long to see you. Again, he can't wait to see them again because he wants to teach them even more. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Again, things outside the letter. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the divine uh, training and in in that is in the faith. So they're already saying, don't follow these traditions outside of what has been given to the apostles, this authoritative teaching handed down to the apostles. So things outside of the letters. And I'll share this even more later on, but in 1 Timothy 3.15, it says the church of the living God is the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. So it's pointing to a church of the living God. So outside of the of the letters themselves is the authority, which is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Uh, the scripture is inerrant and it only speaks truth, but our interpretation is not. And what interprets that scripture and also faithfully hands down the teachings of Jesus that are even captured outside of the Bible itself is the church of the living God, the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, If you put these instructions before the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. So here he's telling Timothy how to be a good bishop. 2 Timothy, we move into 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. It says, Follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So here, St. Paul is telling Timothy uh, to uh, follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from him. So St. Paul is referring to stuff that he has taught Timothy in the faith to be uh, a bishop in the church and how to guide the faithful into truth that is uh, entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit who dwells within the uh, the apostles, so the Pope and the bishops in union. Chapter 2, verse 2. What you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In this passage, we see that he refers to the first four generations of apostolic succession. So St. Paul mentions his own generation, 
Timothy's generation, who he's writing to, and then the generation Timothy will teach and the generation they will in turn, they in turn will teach. So four generations are mentioned in this one verse. So you already see apostolic succession and authority being handed on through the church. And again, when we go back to our history, we see that the history, that the authority was needed for 400 years, which to put into context, our own country of America has been around for 242 years. So that would be like our entire country almost doubling it and saying that there is no authoritative canon of scripture or anything like that, but we need the authority of the church handed down through the centuries that Jesus promised to lead by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, in 2 Timothy, it says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So here he's even referencing himself, who you learned it from. And that is because they have d- uh, authority given that is from Jesus to the apostles. And then uh, this is a very famous, uh, I guess, proof text and for scripture alone in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And right here, this very verse, these two verses, Catholics completely agree with that sacred scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I can attest to this in my own life. Reading the word of God brings me uh, this, teaching, reproof in what I'm doing, correction in what I'm saying or doing my actions, and for training in righteousness to become more in right relationship with God, which is which is righteousness. Because sacred scripture is inspired by God and is still the living word of God. However, uh, the scripture doesn't say it's the only thing that is useful in for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, nor does it mean that scripture is the only source of God's saving revelation. Reading into the text um, is where we get that notion here that it's saying that scripture alone is sufficient. So reading into the text is when you actually read something which is not actually there. And so the scripture actually says, it, it says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. So reading into the text would be interpreting that it says that only scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But that's not what it says. It says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, which it is. But it does not say that it's sufficient or should ever be used alone away from the church. And actually, at the time of this writing, they didn't even have the New Testament in order to point to itself. So this is a scripture uh, verse that is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit obviously is outside the time. So he knows that the church was going to put this in the Bible and the New Testament scriptures also are inspired by the word of uh, inspired by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness. But it is not the only um, source of for all those things, nor is it ever supposed to be read only by itself or it's our sole rule of faith. And then uh, lastly in, chap- in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, it says, Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So here, St. Paul is telling Timothy that there's going to be a time where people are trying to teach themselves their own uh, teachings, just whatever sounds like what they want to believe. Just so, just like I, I went to a church that said that there was not even a hell. Well, Jesus talks about hell all the time, but of course, as a human being, we don't want to believe in believe in hell. Like, so we're gonna say that our teaching um, it, it suits our likeness. So then we're gonna accumulate these teachings for ourselves, and we uh, str- we turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths, just as it says. And then we move into the book of Hebrews, chapter thirteen, verse seven through uh, nine, and then again in uh, verse seventeen, it says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which you have benefited their adherents. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give account. Let them do this joyfully and not sadly, for that would be of no advantage of you. So here there's no mention of Bible. Instead, the author exhorts his readers to hold to the spoken word, sacred tradition, capital T tradition, passed on by those with authority. And then uh, in uh, chapter uh, 13, later on in that same chapter, verse 23 says, I shall see you. So he, uh, again, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying that there's going to be a time, uh, hopefully in the future, that they can see face-to-face to to teach face-to-face and that the letter itself has an all-encompassing or all of the doctrines listed in there. And then I love the second letter of St. Peter. So we see already that there's problems with people interpreting scripture wrong. So uh, chapter 1, verse 20 in Second Peter says, No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So already we're seeing that people are misinterpreting scripture on what they want it to be. So, But St. Peter says, no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man. And no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And that is what I did. And that's what we see all the time happening is that we're reading the Bible for what we want it to say. But scripture itself is telling us not to do that. And then in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, it's, uh, uh, 17, it says, There are some things in Paul's letters hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter goes on to warn Christians, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware, lest you be carried away with the air of lawless men and lose your own stability. So here, St. Peter, again, our first pope, is saying that people are reading uh, St. Paul's letters and misinterpreting them and unstable and they're uh, ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So there's already a problem right from the beginning of people reading the letters or uh, um, reading the Bible and interpreting it their own way and it twists uh, the truth and their own interpretation is wrong. And it even shows again like that Ethiopian uh, eunuch. We need the authority of the church to interpret scripture because guess what? Paul's letters and the rest of the Bible are hard to understand. Uh, Then we move to 1 John in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he's literally going on to say, How you know the spirit of truth? Well, you listen to us, who has the authority granted to him, granted to the church by Jesus Christ himself, Peter and the apostles. So, and he says, listen to us, not reads our letters and uh, figures it out himself what we're meaning. No, the authority of the church has that spirit of truth because Jesus founded the church and said the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And there's already a, uh, he already is showing that people that don't listen to the apostles, but listen to other people who claim to know the truth, they are not of God. And so uh, he who is not of God does not listen to us, St. John says. And uh, in Second John, verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, but I hope to come to see you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. So here he's even saying that he doesn't even want to write these letters. And guess what? This letter itself is an inspired word of God. But he's showing that he has authority uh, and from the church in order to teach them face to face. So there's things outside of what we even see in the letters that are have authoritative teaching and this oral tradition. Third John, uh, verse six, testified to your love before the church. Verse nine, support such men that we may be fellow workers in the truth. Verse 14, we will talk together face to face. So here we see that the church is a visible um, entity to testify your love before. Uh, and to support such men that are in the that have authority in the church because they're fellow workers in the truth, and they long to see them people face to face again because they want to teach them face to face and not just from letter alone. And then in uh, uh, Jude verse nine it says, "In like manner, these men and their dreamings of 
dreamings defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So this verse is not from scripture, and he's actually quoting a, an apocryphal book, which is called The Assumption of Moses. So there's a wider tradition. So already here, we're seeing that there's things outside of the Bible, even though they're not inspired by God. So uh, the apocryphal work of The Assumption of Moses is not an inspired work uh, of God or an inspired writing. However, it doesn't contain all false, and the Bible alone, and the Bible actually points to it because it does contain some truth. And here we see St. Jude quoting that. And then again, we see him in verse 14, just a few verses later, uh, doing the same thing with another apocryphal book from, from the book of Enoch. And it says, It was of these also the Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads. So that is a quote from the apocryphal book of Enoch. So we see again that uh, there's things used in a wider tradition outside of scripture alone. So now let's move into what the church actually teaches about tradition. And I think we're going to see that the church actually does the best job that more than any other church actually distinguishing sacred tradition versus other human-made traditions. Big T traditions versus small T. And the Catholic Church only has divinely revealed traditions in the fullest sense. We have everything that was uh, divinely revealed by Jesus. So Catechism 83, it says this, Sacred tradition is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms adapted to different places and times in which the great tradition, big T, is expressed. In the light of tradition, big T, these traditions, small t, can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. So there we even see right in the church's teaching that there is a need to distinguish between sacred tradition and small t tradition. And so the key to determining which traditions are sacred and which are merely human is the same as the key to telling which writings are sacred and which are merely human. The authoritative magisterium of the church recognizes the canon, so to speak, of sacred tradition, just as it recognized the canon of sacred scripture. Catholics recognize that those doctrinal and moral teachings taught by the church since the beginning and Christian history were given by Jesus to the apostles and handed on by them to their successors down through the centuries. These are recognized as sacred tradition. So there's other Catholic small t traditions that are more aptly called ecclesiastical traditions or disciplines or customs which are man-made in the sense that Christians develop them over the centuries as means to better live out their, their Christian faith. So all Christian communities, not just Catholics, have human traditions in one form or another. But sacred, tra but sacred tradition, as a direct expression of the authority Jesus gave to the apostles and the successors, is different. Whatever the Catholic Church teaches, it is bound to fidelity to sacred tradition and sacred scripture. It cannot sanction just anything, just anything it chooses, but only that which is in accord with what it has been given. Sacred tradition comes from God, so as such, it may not be altered by men. So now let's move into like a little bit of an example um, to move into. So consider the church's teaching concerning the male-only priesthood. Some Catholics mistakenly believe that the church can change this doctrine and that women can and should be ordained priests. In other words, they believe this doctrine to be a changeable discipline. But the male-only priesthood is implicit in sacred scripture, which we see in, in sacred scripture that Christ only chose men as priests and the apostles did likewise. But it is also explicit in sacred tradition. So in contrast to the discipline of the male-only priesthood is the discipline of celibacy in the priesthood. It is widely known that in general, throughout the most of the church history, only men who are willing to commit to long, lifelong celibacy can be ordained to the priesthood to reflect Jesus' being married to the church. However, mandatory priestly celibacy is not a doctrine of the church. Although celibacy is commended in scripture as a way to be more perfectly devoted to God and his kingdom, and we see that in Matthew 19, uh, verse 12, and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 34, St. Paul, it is, not an absolutely, it is not an absolute requirement for ordinations to the priesthood. This being the case, it, it could theoretically change. The church could choose to ordain married men. In fact, there are certain... Uh, cases today that it already does so. 
So just to distinguish between a doctrine and a discipline, here you go. So the male-only priesthood is a doctrine, an unchangeable doctrine uh, that was handed down from Jesus to the apostles and given throughout the early church. And then the celibacy uh, practice in the priesthood, that is a changeable discipline. So just an example of why uh, sacred tradition is needed. So let's use for an example the doctrine of baptismal regeneration is found in several places in scripture, such as uh, in John ver chapter 3, verse 5, where says, Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But because Jesus uses the metaphor for baptism, born of water and the spirit, many Protestants over history have tried to deny that it is a reference to baptism at all and have claimed that baptismal regeneration is false. This is dis this is disproven through the sacred tradition preserved in the writings of the church fathers who not only teach baptismal regeneration but also unanimous unanimously interpret John 3:5 as referring to baptism. So sacred tradition is expressed in the beliefs and practices that the early church received from the apostles, and it fills out and interprets the revelation of sacred scripture on the question and authoritatively settles the matter for us. And our understanding of sacred tradition continues to develop, and the church grows to understand it more fully. So this is sometimes is evidenced by magisterial documents where it already talks about like the Trinity, the Eucharist, all these things that are sacred tradition, but we understand them more fully as time goes on, and the church grows into maturity, and the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church. So um, not even private revelations made by God to, Christian throughout, uh, to Christians throughout history can add to the word of God, according to the Catholic Church. So Catechism 67. So the whole reason I wanted to talk about this is because there are many times in the Catholic faith where Jesus appeared to, to saints, Mary appeared to saints, saints <laughs> appeared to other people, um, uh, and just like these very powerful encounters. But the Catechism even says in Catechism, paragraph 67, it says this. Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's divine revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the census fidelium knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ and his, of his saints to the church. So as we have seen so far that it's, it's really necessary to distinguish between sacred tradition and human traditions, always holding fast to the sacred. It is also necessary to distinguish between human traditions imposed with proper authority and those not, and to give due assent to the former, the former being proper authority. Uh, that is uh, recognizing a human tradition. And as we have briefly uh, touched on uh, previously, that uh, if the church tried to make a list that had a complete list of all the doctrines or anything like that, it'd be attempting to run ahead of the Holy Spirit by forcing the process of doctrinal development to a sudden and premature end. If the church, for instance, had tried to make such a list before the outbreak of the monothelite controversy, the list would not have included the proposition that Christ has a human will distinct from but entirely in harmony with his divine will. So no one would have thought to include that proposition because no dispute had arisen about the issue. Once the monothelite appeared and the church was pushed into realizing what Christ's full humanity implies, the monothelites could have claimed, you can't say that Christ has two wills. The list of apostolic teachings doesn't mention such a doctrine. So therefore, our understanding as the, the church's understanding of divine revelation always will continue to grow, and but the, the truth will always stay the same. So just to recap on the church's teaching on tradition. Sacred tradition is not the same as the customs and practices associated with the church that can change over time, such as manners of dress, styles of liturgy, etc., things that we've talked about. Capital T, capital T traditions refers to the word of God that is handed on or delivered and does not change even though our understanding of it may deepen and grow over time, just as our understanding of scripture deepens and grows over time. And the word of God cannot contradict contradict itself. So if a tradition contradicts scripture, then this tradition must be of human, small t, rather than the divine, capital T, origin. If a document purporting to be scripture, such as a forged or heretical gospel, contradicts uh, sacred tradition, or if someone's interpretation of scripture contradicts it, then we know that it too is of human origin.
So we absolutely need the Catholic Church in order to hold fast to the sacred traditions given and revealed by Jesus Christ himself, handed down to the apostles and faithfully handed down through church history. And as you look at history for 2,000 years, that sacred tradition has been held fast to and the fullness of truth is only found in the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. So next episode, I'm just so excited to talk about the papacy found in the Bible, the early church, uh, the papacy and the authority of the church, and we're going to work through through that as well. But before we even uh, go to that next episode, I just want to mark say break down the four marks of the church. It is one holy Catholic and apostolic. So it's right in the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed came out of the Nicene Council in uh, 325. So before uh, scripture was even, uh, we even had a canon of the Bible yet. It is one holy Catholic and apostolic. So what does that mean? It is, there is one church. It is perfectly united. And we're going to see that Jesus intended for a visible united church in order that the world may believe (laughs) in John 17. Um, and then it is holy and it has to be holy because, because it is the body of Christ and Christ is holy and it's holy because it's divinely instituted, even though it's made up of a ton of sinner, sinners, including the Pope, the church was still divinely re- instituted and divinely led. And so that's why it's holy. And then the next one is Catholic. Catholic is literally means universal. And the first time that the church was described this way, as far as we know, is by St. Ignatius of Antioch and and a letter that he has. uh, And actually I have the letter to the Smyrnans. And he even uses the word Catholic because it's universal. And the Catholic church is the only uh, religious um, uh, body that literally goes throughout the entire world. It is universal and apostolic. So the last one is apostolic, which I think is probably the the biggest like hook on every uh, convert. Apostolic. It goes all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. And even in the Old uh, Testament, there was the rabbis of the Jewish law. They would trace their teachings all the way back to Moses to show that they had authority to teach. To teach. And the church even today can trace its origins all the way from Pope Francis today all the way back to Peter that was established by Jesus to be the rock of the church that had the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the apostles shared in the authority of binding and loosing of teaching of faith and morals and the teaching of sacred tradition has been unbroken for 2,000 years, faithfully handed down. If you read any history, you're going to see that Christianity before the 1600s was was all Catholic. The entire Catholic Church has existed for 2,000 years from Jesus' time to today, and it will last forever because the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in the next episode, we're going to see that Jesus founded a visible church upon Peter and the apostles that is one holy Catholic and apostolic that has authoritatively taught the truth both on morals and faith for 2,000 years. And if you are Christian, but you uh, are not in the Catholic Church, praise the Lord. You are in love with Jesus. You have this awesome relationship with him. Praise God. But go ahead and ask Jesus. Ask him, Jesus, did you establish just one church? And is there more? And he's going to show you that there is there is more in his one holy Catholic and apostolic church that he founded. So thank you everybody for listening on this episode. I pray that it was fruitful for you and I can't wait to talk about Peter and the apostles, the Pope and the authority of the church in our next episode. If you have any requests, comments, questions, shoot me an email. And if you just want to get together for, to pray for inner healing, physical healing, I'm I want to go wherever the Holy Spirit is moving and watch Jesus heal people. So if you have any requests on that too, go ahead and shoot me an email or text me and I'm praying for you all. God bless you.